section tonight that we will be going over is the glorious appearing and Paul. I knew it. You've been thinking about Paul this entire time, haven't you? The but Paul, the but Paul crowd has arrived to throw a leg cramp into the swimming lane. They always do. I'm robbing you of your hope, and Paul proves that fact, says your latest social media headline. It doesn't matter how many verses I turn to, even the sentences saturated with the red letters. Their weight is only so strong as the draw four, the draw four Paul card, the wild card in Uno, which you now hold in your hands. You're going to slap it down and draw four, Noel. You lose. Paul disagrees with you. If there's anybody who can disprove the entirety of canon, Paul is up for the task. The guy delivers, rarely letting any of us down. In his second letter to Timotheus, or Timothy, you were warned about guys like me. I ain't being facetious, but, they get, but then again, I'm not. It is truly incredible watching licensed to sin Christians cling to the man as, so as to conform the overbearing weight of instructions and righteous living to their desire rather than the other way around. And well, moving on to my stealing of your hope, let's read some theology, shall we? So this comes from Second uh, Timothy Sheni or Second Timothy. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their word will eat as does a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Oh dear. Hymenaeus and Philetus, the Kinker brothers, strike again. Apparently, figuring out that we've missed the rapture is a biblical pastime. Doesn't anybody find it remotely odd that two individuals were going around proclaiming have they, how they'd been left behind? The mere fact that people were persuaded by their message tells us of the 40-year temple generation's mindset. They were fully aware that Yahushua HaMashiach was walking up the driveway, pushing his finger ever closer to the doorbell. The majority of scholars date 2 Timothy to 64 or 65 AD, the very years in which Paul is said to have been martyred under the thumb of Nero. Timothy Sheni, or 2 Timothy, is almost universally recognized to be his final letter, particularly because of lines such as this one. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have guarded the faith. Rather suspicious that Paul announces his retirement after instructing Timotheus to keep a lid on it. Why must you act so suspicious all the time, Paul? Hmm? In my original draft of this paper, I suggested the possibility that the dating of Paul's final epistle arrives several years too early, and in fact, he may have penned it after not making the cut. The other surviving members of the Twelve, Yochanan being one of them, as well as the local uh, Kodashim, the set-apart, would have already been taken by this point. And so what Paul was doing before slipping away into retirement, sipping a coconut cocktail from a beachside house of the Flavians or the Herodians, was shut the Kinker Brothers up as damage control. 
Otherwise, why would saying that the resurrection has already passed overthrow the faith of some? 2,000 years later, according to the official timeline, and my faith sure isn't overthrown. Making the case that, quote, believing they didn't make the cut, unquote, will increase to more ungodliness still doesn't jive with me. This is probably none of my business, but perhaps the Christians of Antioch were already advocating lawlessness. I seem to recall an entire book series where people had to come to terms with the fact that they were left behind. After the rapture, uh, reevaluations were in order, which wouldn't always come easy seeing as how the government was trying to cover up what really happens. That's according you know, to any kind of uh, tribulation uh, rapture uh, storyline. Should we expect anything less of the 78 day timeline? Of course not. The, the, the answer is a simple no. Increasing to more ungodliness just because the foolish virgins didn't have their oil lamps trimmed makes no sense whatsoever. If anything, it gives them a second chance to reevaluate their rotten work. An explanation is probably in order. At the time of my first two drafts of this paper, I had already checked Paul from canon on the basis that billions of Christians across the realm use him to promote their rebellion against Yahuwah's commands. You will have to read in other places that I have not only returned to giving Paul the benefit of the doubt, but I have also demonstrated to my satisfaction that he was indeed a Torah-promoting apostle of Mashiach. Had he taken a dump on the Torah by doing away with the laws, if the church of Mashiach were intended to be the second story of an outhouse with Moshe on the ground floor, then he would be a false apostle needing chucked into the wastebasket. And in fact, if he did do away with the Torah, then I would still say the same thing of him. He is not, though, according to my perspective, even if he appears to have written his letters from a bait-stained plank on the wharf. Sometimes the fish smell lingers with each reading, but I am working through the kinks. That is to say, Paul and I have made up via ongoing therapy sessions, though we're still in them. We're good. He and I are back on the, the b-ball court shooting hoops. But then I'm somewhat of a kinker cousin myself, if you've read the comments floating about in the online gossip columns, because I'm an advocate of texts such as this one right here, Fazora Nicodemus 21, then Adonai holding Adam by the hand delivered him to Michael the Archangel, and he led them into paradise filled with mercy and glory. I've read from this verse a lot over the last several weeks as it is. According to Bezorah Nicodemus, the resurrection of the dead happened at the instance of Yahushua's death. FYI, the scholars believe Nicodemus was originally written in Hebrew. Say what you will about it, but the book was wildly popular for a great many centuries, telling us that Christians spanning the realm all believed it to be true. Come to think of it, Paul apparently did as well. To quote from one of his mo most popular one-liners in 2 Corinthians, he wrote, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with El Yahuwah. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And of course, that's 2 Corinthians 5.8. Seems to me that Paul was quite aware how the patriarchs were no longer sleeping with their fathers, as was the long-held doctrine of the Hebrews. Such a belief can best be explained, in my opinion, if Sheol had already been emptied out by this point. And I'm not going to go into all of, of that again. A mile marker had been crossed in his story. 
And for the most part, there was no going back. Many of you will tell me that the emptying of Sheol and the resurrection are two separate events. I beg to differ. Looks like we'll eventually have to hash that one out. And anyways, we also have passages such as this one. This comes from Bezorah, Matzathiyahu, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the Kodashim, which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared into many. Can't say the resurrection didn't happen. Oh, it happened all right. In the very least, it went down for some, though a better way of, say, uh, of saying this is that they came up. Bezorah Nicodemus is all about that episode as well. Interesting how Dr. Lucas, Paul's biographer, fails to mention it. Presently, the butt people are frantically turning through Paul's letters in disapproval, and the Southern Baptists are hawking up a loogie, or at least preparing to. I could give you a second and a third and maybe even a fourth witness, but now I'm thinking that what needs to be done is an inclusion of my paper, Adam's Return to Paradise, uh, which I probably will include into the 70 AD paper, which gives ample proof that the resurrection indeed happened at the moment of Yash uh, Yahusha's death. Uh, I will go ahead and post a link in the instance that I don't get around to it. Boom, there you go, there's the link. I bet you'll never guess who else believed the resur resurrection already happened. Before I tell you, you have been given a hint. He is the man in the painting presently being eaten by, by a hyena and a lion. Still not sure? Your second hint assigns his martyrdom to the whereabouts of 108 AD, or as late as the 140s by some estimates. Some of you already know the answer, but I will ask you to keep it close to the chest so that the remainder of the group might remain suspended in the mystery of his identity for another moment or two. Well, here is his quote. If then those who had lived according to ancient practices came to the newness of hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, dun, 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 but living in accordance with Adonai's day, uh oh, on which our life also arose through him and his death, which some deny the mystery through which we came to believe, and because of which we patiently endure, in order that we may be found to be disciples of Jesus Christos, our only teacher seeing that even the prophets, being his disciples, were expecting him as their teacher through the spirit or the ruach. And for this cause, he whom they rightly awaited, when he came, raised them from the dead. Magnesians chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Say what? It is claimed right here that the prophets of the OT were raised from the dead at Yahushua's coming. Say it ain't so. And now for the big reveal. Ignatius of Antioch is our culprit. Ignatius hated the Torah, by the way. That much should be evident in what I've already shown you. His seven letters written on the road to Rome, wherein he had a run-in with a lion and a hyena, apparently, was a campaign and possible spook operation aimed at doing away with the law, and Paul was his boy, more like a patsy. He quoted Paul like it was nobody's business, twisting his words in every which way, as Kiefer warned. Moving away from the, the Sabbath of Yahuwah to Sunday was a central tenet of his scheme, all of which was apparently justified by Yahusha's teachings. Chapter and verse, please. Chapter and verse. He was centuries ahead of Constantine on that one. I suppose he will have to chew on his resurrection claim with a salt shaker then. 
the way it just rolls off his tongue, though. No further expounding is given. He simply expects that his reading audience in Magnesia is familiar with the mile marker and his attempts to ostracize the Sabbath keepers, wrestling the keys of the kingdom away from them. And that he was Ignatius was really big on that. He he knew that there were a lot of people reading scripture for what scripture said and obeying it. He didn't like that. And so his big push was, no, we've got these bishops, and you better listen to these bishops. And if you don't listen to what they say, you will be damned, you will be ostracized from the kingdom. Because without these bishops, there is no Jesus Christos. Like, you know, he he uh, you know, you can only follow him through these bishops. And of course, all his bishops that he was trying to line up happened to be people who were disposing of the Sabbath and the Torah. Hopefully, that probably got some of your some of you boiling right now. But you could see how early this was going down. Seems to me like the emptying of Sheol, uh, and more importantly, its association with the resurrection, was common knowledge of the day, right? So he's not even trying to convince people of that. He's trying to convince people why they shouldn't keep Sabbath. But he's just like it rolls off his tongue, like yeah, the resurrection happened, and and the prophets, uh, they all they all resurrected. It's all risen. How much knowledge had been lost in the waiting as well as the Sunday keeping? At the end of the day, Hymenius and Philetus are two people whom I've never met, and for obvious reasons haven't heard their side of the argument. Paul is dropping another one-sided letter into the mailbox, and I am therefore unaware of the proper context, as I am with many of his letters. Were they in favor of the transfer of dead Nefesh from Sheol to paradise as a result of Yahushua's atonement, which is the context of Nicodemus and other second witness texts, or were they arguing for something else? They've got some splaining to do, and I finally think I know what's going on. All right, so this comes from Revelation chapter 6. And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the nefesh of them that were slain for the word of Elohim and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Yahuwah, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little longer until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. A frequent inquiry that I get asked about uh, concerns a potential reset of Sheol after its initial evacuation in the whereabouts of 30 AD, to which I will reply, that seems to be the case. Seems to be what we're seeing right here, sort of, but not really. Allow me to explain. Sheol was emptied out of the, the Kodashim, the set-apart, but then for whatever reason, the dead nefesh of those who were slain for Mashiach were held under the altar. Not in Sheol, mind you, but under the altar. And I think it was literally, uh, there was like a literal underneath the actual altar in the temple in Yerushalayim. Some people argue it's like an altar up in heaven. I think it, it was actually, maybe it's like on earth as it is in heaven thing, but it was under the altar. And the reason I say that is because of the quote, which I may quote in here, but I've already quoted in other parts in the, um, in the, uh, the paper. Stephen was the first recorded martyr and would have been included among them, among these, these saints who were under the altar. 
they wanted vengeance for their blood, but were told to wait another 2,000 years and some change. No, wait, scratch that. Just a little longer, not 2,000 years. Notice how they are quarantined from all other dead nefesh recorded throughout his story. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and Yeshiahu are not included among them. What is also different about this situation is that they were clothed in white robes, signifying the presence of the Ruach HaKadosh. As far as my present knowledge goes, and from everything that I've read, she never entered Sheol to clothe the dead Kodeshim. In this way, Paul uh, Paul's claim in 2 Corinthians 5, 8 still rings true. They were in the presence of Yahuwah, clothed in the Ruach HaKadosh, and were perfectly capable of communicating with him. So there is your reset. They weren't in Sheol. Sheol had been emptied out. But for whatever reason, there was this like holding cell where everyone who was being slaughtered off in that 40 years, that generation, they, weren't, they, were, they were going below the altar and able to communicate with, with uh, the Most High or Yahusha, and he was able to communicate with them. But even that containment of dead nefesh under the altar of the temple was only intended for the 40-year temple generation. And as I've already shown you through the testimony of Josephus, they were released. To quote him again, so it looks like I did put the quote in here. It comes from more of the Jews. Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court, court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place, they fell to quaking. So there's your earthquake for you, right? The, the, the supernatural world is opening up and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. And so I believe that's the, 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 the Ruach, the Ruachoth of the dead Nefesh, the dead souls uh, rising up to heaven at that time. They were released at that time. In conclusion, the scene emanating from the fifth seal of Revelation was fulfilled long ago. Yahushua came for them, or at the very least, they were released from their holding cell. They too were evacuated before the temple was destroyed. Was there another reset? We are not told. What I mean by that is, you know, if we if we die today, are we are we put in some other, you know, room somewhere and told just to wait a little longer? But, I don't really know. I don't know. Do we go straight to, to paradise? We'll have to find out, obviously. Whatever was truly going on with the Kinker brothers, the thing about them is that they are still employed as a rebuke for anyone who says the resurrection has already occurred. Though not even Paul managed, managed to think the twinkling of an eye moment would go down 2,000 years later. No, he advocated a glorious appearing event within his own generation. Looks like Paul needs a spanking as well then. Who's overturning the faith of many now, Paul? You don't believe me. I expected as much. Well, then let's hear it from the horse's mouth. And this comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 15, it looks like. For this we say unto you by the word of Yah, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of Yah shall not prevent them which are asleep. For Yahuwah himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the shofar of Elohim, and the dead in Mashiach shall rise first. See, that's interesting there. Now, I, I didn't even comment on this, but he says the dead in Mashiach, right? Not the, not the dead 
before Mashiach, but the dead in Mashiach. I don't, I, I don't know if that's just a play on words or if it's very specific. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Yah in the air, and so shall we ever be with Yahuwah. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, wow, is all I have to say about that. Does Paul deliver or does he deliver? I never should have doubted him. Recall what we have already read. The dead were resurrected underneath the altar, and the controllers admittedly heard it. Furthermore, meeting Yah in the clouds and then being with Yahuwah forever does not signify the immediate initiation of the thousand-year kingdom. It simply means the set-apart would be with Yahushua wherever he was, and as I've already shown, Scripture agrees. But then the fact remains that Paul included himself in the resurrection, sticks out like a sore thumb. He says we, and then it thinks to include it a second time, we. Just so we're clear, we includes himself, and you and I are pronouns, which furthermore designate we are not contemporaries of his. Was Paul simply stating his opinion again? I think he was. That's what Paulianity conveniently claims anyways, whenever they don't agree with their man. In uh, Anyhow, like, say, head covering on women. Oh, that's just Paul stating his opinion. Oh, that's convenient. If so, then the entire passage should be taking, taken as an opinion as well. You can't have it both ways. Paul is promising a future event and then including himself in it. What he should have said is, we the dead in Mashiach, all cozied up in our white robes under the altar, shall rise first, then those of you which are alive and remain shall be caught up. But no, what we have before us is further evidence that Paul was a man, albeit a servant of Mashiach, who was writing commentary upon the Torah as well as the mysteries of heaven. Now, for some of you, that's enough to, you know, people get turned off by that. I'm never listening to Noel again. He doesn't believe Paul's canon. Uh, you know, or, or I should say, Holy Spirit breathes scripture. No, I, I think he was a, a, a man who uh, truly loved Mashiach, was truly convicted of the ministry of, of the person of Yahushua HaMashiach, of his death and resurrection, and that he was writing letters, uh, really desirous to see people come into the kingdom, the, the Gentiles into Israel, and that he was battling against, uh, you know, the Pharisees and Judaism and all sorts of stuff. But I think he was a man who was writing letters, like licking a stamp, posting it to churches. And I think that's what they were intended for. And I think we take them way, way beyond their intended context. For me, that's not, you know, dissing the guy. That's just, that's just my perspective on it. And, you know, I'm willing to be wrong. Uh, Anyways, just so we're clear, Paul was hopeful that he would labor, that he would labor and live up to the moment of Yahushua's glorious appearance. And I don't see any wrong in that. I think he, I don't think he had, you know, an inside word on Paul. You're going to, you know, die on this. Like, I think he was really hopeful that he could be one of those uh, that would live to see it. But that just goes to show that he was fully convicted that it would happen in his generation. Every, everybody who wrote the Bible believed it would happen in their generation. And then we read this in 1 Thessalonians 1.19, same book. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Adonai Yehusha HaMashiach at his coming? There it is again. 
Paul opens up his letter with the assurance that his generation of readers, the contemporaries, those who are literally pulling the letter out of the mailbox, would, leave, would live to see Yahusha HaMashiach upon his arrival. I know it says ye this time, but you are not the ye spoken about here. He did not write the letter to you. The scholars slap a date of 49 to 51 on this one. You are not a resident of the first century, uh, of first century Thessalonica. He did not postmark his letter and drop it in the courier sack with the added directions, do not open until 1948 when the Ashkenazi overtake Israel by force, claiming to be Jews, uh, claiming to be Jews. It seems pretty evident here who was receiving the promise. And then we read again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this time. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before Elohim, even our Father, at the coming of our Adonai, Yahushua HaMashiach, with all his Kodashim. It happens again. Paul once more advises the residents of Thessalonica to establish their hearts and show themselves blameless via holiness in preparation for the coming of Yahushua HaMashiach with all of his Kodashim. You obviously can't do that without the Torah. That would be a huge issue if he's throwing up the Torah and then telling you to be blameless. There's, you can't have it both ways. If Yahushua wasn't expected in their generation, what Paul should have said is their heart should be established unblameable for their appointed hour of death. So those are two different things. Like with me, it's like I'm preparing my heart for my death, right? I'm going to die someday. Like, unless if, you know, Yahuwah intervenes. But look at the, right, the 2,000 years of official history behind me, right? People died. They all came and died. And he wasn't writing to each generation telling them that he would return in their generation. Why tell them about something that wouldn't happen for another 2,000 years? I could show you countless references in scripture prior to Mashiach, which promises the unavoidable. Not so for this generation. You don't see that throughout the Old Testament, where they're like, you know, you never know, you might be the generation of Mashiach, prepare your hearts. They don't talk like that. It's a totally different language use that's going on in the New Testament. And to top that off, the mere fact that Yahushua was expected to arrive with his Kodashim to set apart just goes to show that Sheol was more than likely emptied out. All right, moving on. Another First Thessalonians quote, this one from chapter 5. And the very Elohim M. Shalom sanctify you holy. And I pray to Elohim that your whole ruach and nefesh and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Adonai Yahushua HaMashiach. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. Dang. Paul's first letter to the uh, church of Thessalonica is loaded with anticipation. I'm counting four separate instances when Paul assures his recipients that Yahushua is coming for them. And in one letter. Paul isn't just promising safekeeping of the Ruach and the Fesh either, as even their bodies are expected to be preserved. Supposing you're curious as to why I showed up, uh, showed a picture of skulls specifically women whom I presume to be nuns, as they stand around with candles singing, maybe even worshiping them, uh, for all I know. Now you know. I've seen the reported bones of the Kodashim in various places, or rather those bones which are presumed to be those of the saints. 
though I have yet to see a preserved body. Well, that's only a bit of a bummer, since Paul assured his readers that Yahushua HaMashiach is faithful to those whom he calls. Also, he will do it. Awkward, looks like he didn't do it. Double downer. He didn't follow through with it. Or did he? Why must the, the Paul fanboys fight against what the apostle was saying? I get the feeling that his aboriginal audience had little trouble understanding it. Though we are expected to believe that they opened up his letter and said, look, everyone, Paul is writing us to warn a future generation thousands of years from now. All right, so moving on to uh, his letters to the Philippians. And I'm showing you there a picture of the Church of Philippi. A little inconvenient that it no longer exists, even though they were promised some things. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Mashiach. Moving on to the Philippian, the, the Philippine, the Philippian congregate, congregants. I don't think he ever wrote a letter to the Philippines. You never know. Paul is exhorting them to be sincere and without offense until the day of Mashiach. I checked. Philippi sits in ruins. You have to wonder if the day of Mashiach ever arrived for the church it was promised to. Since we're on the subject, what are they to be sincere to exactly? Well, offense is another way of saying transgression. The genuine quality of their faith is dependent upon their faithfulness to the only commands which were put down into writing, which were available in every corner synagogue, by the way, and that is the Torah of Elohim. Well, let's look around and see if there are any other churches which Paul, the serial promiser, offered the day of Mashiach to. And so here we see First uh, Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. I thank my Elohim always on your behalf for the grace of Elohim, which is given you by Yahushua HaMashiach, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Mashiach was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Adonai, Yahushua HaMashiach, who shall confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Adonai, Yahushua HaMashiach. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, 2,000 years is a long time for anyone, much less the uh, Church of Corinth. I know Paul was a tent maker, but expecting his buyers to stake one of them among the ruins, sitting around cranking their necks up at the white puffy clouds until they are eventually turned into chemtrails, waiting for the archaeologists to dig them out of a pit, but also for the self-realization of the Ashkenazi and their eventual kickstart of the 1948 fig tree generation in the news. That's kind of wordy. Clement of Rome has much to do with why my mind was changed on Paul. Some of you were there for it last summer. It came during one of my weekly online studies at the Unexpected Cosmology. I am not presently interested in giving you line-for-line -line commentary on Clement's epistle to the Corinthians. Oh, of course, we just read from the Church of Corinth, uh, the letter to, because that would take a book, and as you can see, I'm presently already writing one. It should suffice you, though, to note that fissures in the church is a prominent theme in Clement's uh, letter, and the very reason as to why the newly positioned bishop of Rome took up the pen. 
the church of Corinth was a pet project of Paul's, and there was a clear division between those who followed Paul and those who rejected him in favor of Kepha after their death, which is very telling. Up until that moment, I was on the Kepha side of the divide, meaning I rejected Paul but accepted Kepha. But then I read passages such as this one in Clement's letter. Being adorned with a most virtuous and honorable life, ye performed all your duties in the fear of him. The commandments and the ordinances of Yahuwah were written on the tablets of your hearts. Uh, Clement's uh, letter to the Corinthians uh, 2.8. What surprised me in all of this is that Clement upheld the whole of Scripture. Sin was a transgression of the law, the Torah, according to him, and yet he held Paul in an upright position. In praising the former reputation of the Corinthians rather than their present one, stating that the commandments and ordinances of Yahuwah were written on the tablets of their hearts, he is rebuking them for giving up on that. Incredible. Clement was a Torah man. Also, the letter he wrote 2,000 years ago, according to the official timeline, is still bearing fruit and changing opinion to this very day. It changed my opinion on Paul. As silly as this will sound to some of you, it's because of Clement's letter that I also changed my opinion on Paul's quote-unquote retirement letter, wherein he bemoans the canker sores of eschatology in Timotheus Shinny. Second Timothy. No, he wasn't off sipping coconuts in some recently constructed resort on the island of Patmos. He really did die. And by the time that he got around to writing the to the Corinthians, Kepha had too, uh, when Clement had. And this is what Clement writes in chapter 5. But to pass from the example of ancient days, let us come to those companions who lived nearest to our time. Let us set before us the noble examples which belong to our generation. By reason of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even into death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Kepha, who by reason of unrighteous jealousy endured not one but many labors, and thus having, having borne his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. That's a really interesting, too, I, I didn't pick up on this before, that says his appointed place of glory. It seems like Clement wasn't exactly sure where he went. He just said wherever he went, it was to a place of glory, but he wasn't really sure. And that might speak of the reset. By reason of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, uh, pointed out the prize of patient endurance. After that he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, we read about that in Acts, had preached in the East and in the West, uh, that would be the missing chapter of Acts that we don't have, where he went to Spain and England and then to Switzerland. He won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness into the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the West. And that, that actually speaks to um, the last chapter, I think it's Acts 29 being legit that he's quoting from something that we no longer have in our canon. And when he had borne his testimony before the rulers, so he departed from the world and went into the holy place. There it is again with the holy place. He doesn't really know where it is. It's just, it's a holy place. Having been uh, found a notable pattern of patient endurance. And by the way, I would say that Paul and Kepha would have been two of those voices under the altar that were released. They would have been among them with Stephen and the others. 
And there you have it. Kifa is a historical martyr. Not that I was contesting that part, but then in, in the matter of time, so was Paul. Neither lived to witness the glorious appearing, according to Clement. What really boils my bubble and bursts my buttocks, which my, my one-year-old daughter Rivka had a lot of that bursting in the buttocks today, the poor little girl, is all the scholars with the audacity to claim Clement didn't get around to writing his letter to the Corinthians until the reign of Domitian, uh, Domitian which would be the whereabouts of 1896. That's at least 30 years after the fact. Ridiculous. It is so obvious that the temple hadn't been destroyed when he wrote his letter. There are hints throughout. To save you on time, here is but a sample. Uh, this comes from chapter 32 of his book. If any man will consider them one by one in sincerity, he shall understand the magnificence of the gifts that are given by him. For of Yaakov are all the priests and Levites who minister unto the altar of Elohim. Of him is Adonai Yahusha is concerning the flesh. He just did. Clement referred to the Levite priests who ministered unto the altar of Elohim. What I just explained to you was dictated as something that already happened, though. Except when Clement committed the deed, he spoke in the present tense were and ministered versus are and minister. Huge differences, though we are not expected to notice. And then there is the next awkward uh, letter, which has come to my attention. This comes from uh, the Epistle of Clement to Yaakov. And if you're unfamiliar with Yaakov, that would be James, the brother of Mashiach. I'll be talking about him later tonight as well. Clement to Yaakov, Adonai, and the bishop of bishops, telling you that Yaakov was the head of the church. No matter what Rome says, Yaakov was the head of the church, who rules Yerushalayim, present tense, rules the holy church of the Hebrews, and the churches everywhere excellently rounded by the providence of Elohim, with the elders and deacons and the rest of the brethren, shalom be always. Be it known to you, my Adonai, that Shimon, that would be Peter, Kepha, who for the sake of the true faith and the most sure foundation of his doctrine was set apart to be the foundation of the church and for this end was by Yahusha himself with his truthful mouth named Kepha, the first fruits of our Adonai, the first of the apostles to whom first the father revealed the son whom the Messiah or Mashiach with good reason blessed the called and elect and associate at table and in the journeyings of Messiah, the excellence and approved disciple, who as being fittest of all was commanded to enlighten the darker part of the world, namely the West, and was enabled to accomplish it. And to what extent do I lengthen my discourse, not wishing to indicate what is sad, which yet of necessity, though reluctantly, I must tell you, he himself, by reason of his immense love towards men, having come as far as Rome, clearly and publicly testifying in opposition to the wicked one who withstood him, that there is to be a good king over all the world, while saving men by his Elohim-inspired doctrine himself, by violence, exchanged this present existence for life. That may just be the most long-winded death announcement that I've ever read. And if I didn't know any better, a threat from the mafia. Clement doesn't easily get to the point. What I'm, what I'm saying is it sounds like, basically he's saying like, he's telling Clement, he's like, 
Tifa died. I'm in charge now. I'm I'm running Rome in his stead. That's why it sounds like a, like a threatening letter from the mafia or something like that. Try not to let the person to whom he is writing escape you, though. Yaakov is none other than James, the just, the brother of Yahushua HaMashiach. He is writing to inform him that his mentor, Tifa, is dead, but that also as a last will and testament, he is in control of the Roman wing of the church now. The problem with this transaction is that Yaakov is said to have been tossed from the temple in 62, or by some accounts, stoned. Take your pick. Whereas Clement didn't hold office until 88. That's a 26-year difference. Nearly everyone plugged into the mainstream mind will say Clement's to Yaakov is a pseudo or, you know, attributed to him, but fake. But as I have already demonstrated, even first Clement was written before the temple was destroyed. The pieces fit. Am I to believe that Clement was still milking the Kepha and Paul as dead announcements some three decades later when he wrote his letter to the Church of Corinth? That's why confusion abounds, because nobody can get these dates right. You know, everyone's trying to push things beyond 70 AD. Not even the Zionist-run Wikipedia knows if he should be listed as the first, second, or third bishop of Rome after Linus and Cletus, even though everyone admits he was Kepha's successor. The scholars just love spreading his story thin, particularly in places where there is nothing to be had, don't they? What I mean is like the first, second, and third centuries of Christianity, nothing happens. They just, they, they don't know what to do with it. If it were up to me, Clement would have been included in canonical scripture. I love that book, First Clement. It's a great book. Unfortunately for all of us, Constantine didn't send me an invite. But then who knows what would have happened. I might have slapped one of them, Roman controller silly, and ended up in the slammer with St. Nicholas. Because that's, you know, that's what happened. He wouldn't slap somebody and have thrown in prison. <laughs>